You're listening to Accents, a radio show for literature, art and culture. My name is Katerina Stojkova, I'm your host, and today with me is poet Jay McCoy. Hi, Jay. Hello, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you. We've known each other for a long time. <laughs> Many moons. Many moons. These days, you're working on your poetry and you're teaching classes and and you're running a reading series. Yeah. Did I, did I get that right? Oh. <laughs> it's all of my different jobs in yes. there. Yeah, I actually, and I actually just uh, put in my notice of my non-writing job of doing uh, some healthcare credentialing and billing and coding stuff and uh, decided to put that aside and focus on writing and teaching writing. Oh, how awesome is yeah. that? You excited? Yes, very much so. Yeah, because I, I adjunct right now with both uh, EKU and BCTC. And as of now, I'm, I will be adjuncting for both again in the spring. So it was a little easier to walk away from the healthcare job and, and focus on the writing. And something that you used to do several years ago, you used to own a bookstore yes. together with Savannah Sippo. Yeah, yeah. Sav and I had uh, Briar Books for a couple of years there. And before Briar, I was the general manager at Morris. So the whole bookstore thing is always going to be in my blood. Was it fun? Yes. Yeah, it was wonderful. Uh, yeah, there were those days that were not the greatest or... Um, customers who weren't having such a good day and decided to share that with you. But for the most part, it was a wonderful experience to be in a bookstore at least eight hours a day um, and talking to people about your favorite books, your favorite writers, and, and why you read certain things. Well, I hope that the customers that were having a good day also let you know about that. Oh, but... that, that's what made the days even better. <laughs> I mentioned the radio show. Tell us about it. Yeah, uh, we. Uh, I am on uh, Radio Lex, uh, which is the low-power uh, FM here in town, the community radio. And it's me, Kevin Nance, and Linda Bryant, uh, two other wonderful poets. And I share the uh, co-hosting duties for Kentucky Writer Roundtable. And we bring in uh, poets, novelists, memoirists, uh, pretty much any writer uh, who has uh, the Kentucky roots or lives in Kentucky and uh, sit down and chat with them about their latest work and what they're doing and have some good conversations there. Well, you have partnered up with some fabulous poets one of them is Elizabeth Beck. You've been doing things with her for a while. Teen Howell, for yeah. example. Yeah, she's been, she's been my uh, poetry partner since that, uh, that I actually, we first met when I took a class, a journaling class with her at the Carnegie Center ages ago. And uh, it wasn't long after that. We were fast friends. And soon we uh, founded the Teen Howell Poetry Series. Uh, which we did, that was back in 2011, and it is still going strong today. And we actually just turned it over um, this year to Jessica Taylor and Hunter Nelson, who were 
baby poets <laughs> at those early teen houses. They were part of our first round of, of students. Funny um, how they grow up. <laughs> they grow up and, and they do wonderful things in the world and then they want to get involved. And so we figured it, you know, after 12 years, it was time to, to turn it over to, to a younger crowd to handle it. And they're doing a great job with it. It's still first Thursday every month at Third uh, Street Stuff. And what about the new reading series? Tell us more. Well, since uh, Elizabeth and I backed off of Teen Howl, we needed something to do, I guess. <laughs> Nature, of course, vacuum, right? <laughs> right. And so um, we are partnering now with uh, Kenwick Table. And Rhett and his staff are so excited to have a bunch of poets in there once a month. It'll be the first Wednesday of the month, uh, 6 to 9. Um, sign-ups for an open mic start at 5.30, and we'll have a feature poet, um, local, regional writers who we're bringing in or who are here locally will do a feature set, and then we'll have an open mic. And we're going to launch on November 1st with John Lackey. Oh, fabulous. Yeah, yeah, we're excited to have John on the stage. Well, John, he can also sing a few songs there if he's willing well, and he's also, uh, he's got a new art project he's launching this week as well. So uh, things are all tying in to all John Lackey this week. Awesome. Perfect storm for yes. John Lackey. Yeah. You are working on several creative projects, and yes. I want to hear about that. Yeah. I've got um, a couple of different projects that I'm working on. Um, several Several of them tie into my... Uh, interest in genealogy and family and family history. Uh, I've got one project where I'm exploring my uh, my, my paternal grandfather's uh, time at Eastern State Hospital. Uh, he was committed in 1942 uh, or 1936 to Eastern State, and then in 42 he was moved to Kentucky State Hospital, which was in Danville, and he uh, died there in Danville in the 70s. Um, and I was able to obtain his records and use those as sort of a, a basis to fill in what I know, what I didn't know, um, and get a, a taste of his life um, during that time frame. What is it like for you to get this information and to write about it? It's, uh, it's, it's a heavy, it's definitely a heavy thing um, because it was not spoken of. In the family, um, I actually had no idea that he was committed or that he was out of my father's life uh, for the early years until I was in my twenties. Um, and it was only from doing genealogy research and finding uh, the record for him being in uh, in Danville on the census record uh, wow. for 1970. And asking my parents what did was you, yeah did you have to confront them like this no, is no it, no it was just one of those what okay. was you know it's like tell me he, more <laughs> he was at Kentucky State Hospital it yeah. was like what what happened there and come to find out he was actually um, he was his commitment happened six months before my father was born mm. um, but then once my father uh, was older he and his oldest brother. Uh, made regular trips down to visit him, to visit with her father. 
but by that time he had no idea who they were. He just knew they were. Did you ever meet him? No, no. He he. Uh, uh, I I was three when when he passed. Never got a chance to meet him. Did you bring any uh, any poems from that yes. project? Yeah, I would love to. Hear. Yeah, I, this is this is one that um, comes from that project, and also comes from a uh, a prompt from a writing workshop with uh, Carolyn Grace uh, that uh, Shadeland House Modern Press had a a workshop at Berea with Carolyn's book release, and she did a workshop beforehand. And so this came actually from one of her prompts, and it is a definition poem. And the title is Clean Noun. One, free from dirt, marks, or stains. Wallace misses working the soil back home on Johns Creek, how the smell of manure filled his nostrils and how the crisp snap of early mornings hugged him while preparing the ground for planting in the upper garden, how the damp fertile clumps clung to his suede work boots, the ones that matched his wife, Lenny's, as they worked side by side on their piece of her daddy's land until the sun got low. Two, having been washed since last worn or used. Wallace can't remember the name of the nurse on the overnight shift, but she is always kind and never fusses when he messes himself or vomits in the bed. She always makes him presentable before Nurse Broyles shows up on her morning rounds. Three, of paper, not yet marked by writing or drawing. Wallace learned early to write his name. He even wrote letters before they brought him to Lexington. He draws pictures for Dr. Spalvins. Wallace also told the doctor that Lenny's daddy, James, could not even make an X for his mark, like he did on those papers for the judge over in Pikeville, to swear that the lunacy had come on quickly. Four, showing her having no record of offenses or crimes. It was less than a month after a court date that deputies drove Wallace the long drive to Eastern State Hospital. He had no idea he wouldn't be back home, so he didn't say goodbye to Lenny or the boys. It was his first time being that far away for more than a day. Five, of a taste, sound, or smell, giving a clear and distinctive impression of the senses, sharp and fresh. The field worker came to visit Lenny to help her get public assistance. Lenny is proud, but her boys need food and clothes that she can't afford with her babysitting and house cleaning jobs. The field worker says Wallace probably won't come back home. Six, free from pollutants or unpleasant substances. No matter his state, Nurse Broyles always comments in her daily notes that Wallace is untidy and has a strong odor. She su suggests it could be from his current work assignment on the dairy farm. She notes he is cooperative and doesn't complain. He eats well and sleeps well. Seven, of a fuel source of energy or form of technology, producing relatively few or no emissions or greenhouse gases. The night nurse tells Wallace he has four boys, but he only recalls the 13-year-old, nine-year-old he left with Lenny 
He tells the nurse he thinks his wife has passed, but he's not sure because he would be sad. She gives him pills and sits with him for a bit in the day room. Eight of timber, free from knots. After he jumped from the truck truck bed, returning from his shift, mending a fence around the youngest heifers, he spends weeks in the infirmary. He skinned up his face, ripped his khakis, broke his thumb, and feels sore. Dr. Spalvin says he may not get to go back to the dairy. Nine, free from irregularities, having a smooth edge or surface. Wallace likes to talk to everyone and tell them all about the money he has. He often gets hungry and asks others for more food. Some share. Others won't and yell instead. He misses working in the dairy. Ten, morally uncontaminated, pure, innocent. Lenny was not sure about having a minister when they brought Wallace home to rest just above the upper garden near her parents. Wow, exquisite. Thank you very much. Thank you. I love the form. I am so excited of the form that Carolyn Grace does this, uh, what she calls a lyric glossary uh, in her collection, Grenadine and other loves. And it takes a word and deconstructs it and remakes it within that idea of what you're going into. And so I I started actually um, with the word untidy because that kept coming up in his actual records that that one nurse kept writing, he is untidy, he is untidy, he is untidy. Um, And the whole concept of clean just came into my mind. Well, you can still write a gazelle or something like yeah. that with untidy. And and uh, I've actually got a gazelle that's in process uh-huh. uh, that repeats with the he is untidy. And how far along are you with this project? About your um, grandfather? I, I would say I'm about halfway into it. I mm-hmm. still have um, a, a good amount of his records Um to, to sort of go through, um, like I, I have his, the last two years of his life, I have the daily nurse visits. Mm. That, Ooh, that could be very interesting, yeah. poems of quotes from yeah. the visits. Yeah, and that's... Yeah. Erasures yeah. and other fun. Yeah, yeah, it's been, it's been a really uh, deep dive into to that. I, the whole history thing is what... Really, the family history really excites me, and uh, I'm just intrigued with the the asylum system that was that was in place, and how easy it was to have someone committed. Well, I'm sure you've read "Lock Her Up" by Tina Parker. Yeah, yeah. What other projects are you working on? Uh, I'm also working on another family history one, which is on my maternal side. And it was uh, my mother's oldest brother, uh, Junior. Uh, when he was uh, young, he was uh, drafted into uh, World War II. And he went to San Diego, California, to Camp Miramar uh, and Camp Kearney 
to um, do his uh, Marine, Marine Corps training. And he was set to deploy, and they kept putting off his deployment date. And uh, he ended up drowning in a, in a pool in, in San Diego uh, weeks before he was to deploy. He was the, Oh, what so, a tragedy. Yeah. And so, you know, in 1944, and he had, uh, at that time, he had um, 12 younger brothers and sisters. Who were all at home wow. at the time, and so uh, I actually um, have his trunk, which was sent back from uh, San Diego at the time. And when it came back into the house, my grandmother really couldn't go through it or, or look at it or anything. And my grandfather put it into a closet, and he would periodically add other things into it. Um, but I took ownership of that a few years ago, and part of that are over 200 letters back and forth between him and his dad, him and his mother, he and individual brothers and sisters, uh, community people who wrote to him and everything. So that that I've been working with for a, n- a number of years, and I feel like it's it's pretty pretty ready with is it, it emotional uh part of it is uh, you? and and it's yeah it's very emotional for me especially mm-hmm. since my mother my mother was the youngest girl and you know she looked up junior was you know her big brother and you know he, she had such love for him you know she was eight when he died mm-hmm. and uh you know, she had a, a little um, ceramic shoe, a little blue ceramic shoe from New Mexico that Junior had gotten on one of his leaves and had brought home because he had um, he had just been home uh, for, you know, a quick visit before he went back. And, you know, he died soon after he had gone back. And that was one of the things he had brought mother so her connection to him was so strong with it and just the connection he had with the family was was wonderful the letters are brilliant and i've actually in some of the poems actually pull pieces from his letters yeah into the poetry absolutely and in that trunk did you find something that truly stop your breath oh Oh, yeah. Oh, that's uh, his uh, his fountain pen that he <gasps> wrote his letters was still in there. His pipe uh, that he had. And uh, there was actually a um, disintegrating bag of tobacco mm. that, that he had had. Um, the, the, the letters were a tr- treasure trove of information. Um, you know, there were questions that... Um, we had in regards to um, the relationship of my great-grandmother to this man if she had actually married him after she was previously married. And uh, the we had always thought no, but in one of the letters, my grandfather refers to this guy as Maul's husband, hmm. Maul's ex-husband. Uh, and so it's one of those that... 
a number of the family secrets came came out through it as well. Do you have a poem from that? I sure do. That project, great. Yeah, I've actually got two from it. Well, just please read them yeah. both. Yeah. Um, the first one has uh, just a bit of um, what's inspired by one of Junior's letters to um, to his dad. And um, it has bits of that letter in it. And it's called California Night Sky. This California sky is really beautiful, especially at night, like tonight. Another Friday night, the third Friday in August, we returned to the barracks after the show in inky darkness, equaled only by stagnant waters of Lake Joanne back home, waiting for something to bite, sitting for hours, wrapped in pitch, a random sprinkling of sparkling fireflies. At home, mountains may block the view sometimes. Here, all the land, low, rolling, draws heaven close, so close you can reach up, open palms, spread your fingers, collapse and collect stars. Pull your hands down, full of light, and oh boy, that big yellow moon, green moon, corn moon, blueberry moon, smiling right back at you. In my next letter, I must ask Dad if he'll take Mother out to the upper garden, hold her hand and look up at this moon with me. Oh, just gorgeous. And and it was in one of his letters that he did ask his dad to take take the, take mother out to the garden and look at the moon sometime. And then this next one is in in the trunk there were several photographs and a lot of them were photographs of his brothers and sisters that they had taken and sent to him and oftentimes there was something written on the back and so um, this is based on a, a photo of my aunt Geraldine and in the middle of the poem is the what's written on the back of the the photo so this is called Geraldine's Photo, 17th of September, 1944. Junior asked for a picture from all the kids, so Madge took Geraldine's picture in the middle of Cloy Creek Road, just up from the house, with Clark's old location for the dry goods store and the mountains as background. Madge said they would add interest and character, especially since Geraldine would stand there with her arms to her side, hands flat, smoothing the wrinkles from her dress, pigeon-toed in those sensible sandals, flats, white leather, woven hirachis. Even though she really wanted the pink ones with an ankle strap and a shiny silver buckle that they saw in Anderson's window, Madge vetoed that one. She already thought Geraldine looked enough like some Soviet floozy with one of those big fur hats they saw in Collier's magazine, but hers was blonde rather than browned. Geraldine thought herself more like Lana Turner or Virginia Field on the Hollywood movie set. On the back of the black and white photograph in blue ink, Madge had wrote a note to her brother. This is Geraldine. Guess you can notice she got herself a permanent. 
even without saying she didn't like it, not coming out right to say she didn't, didn't approve of her choices. Madge didn't like kinky hair on a good girl. She liked short hair, preferred short hair, usually a bob, straight, clean, no fuss. She cut all her sister's hair short, all except Betty, because she knew Betty would whip her, whip her good. Now, she did like the dress Geraldine picked out to wear. Madge most likely sewn it, made it as she was apt to do, and did very well, often without a pattern. It was a pink and white striped shift, gathered at the waist with ruffles, cascading waves from shoulder to the cinched waist, and just below it, Madge added two useful pockets on the front to hold any trinkets, bibelots, or rocks, gems, Geraldine may find on one of her walks. I love it. I love the detail, and I love the scrutiny of this woman's um, appearance. Tell me about that. Yeah, it's the the photos are just tell so much, and when you know the individuals in the, the photos, the attitudes, and yeah, 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 that's that story comes through. And Madge, who is the the oldest of the girls, um, was often in that mother role, and she did cut their hair, and she did make their dresses. She would literally walk them downtown to the department store and they would look at something and say i like that and usually by the end of the day madge would have made it for them rather than them having to buy it and she was always you know very prim proper and certain thing and and geraldine was probably one of the more mischievous of the girls and i love love my aunt geraldine but (laughs) she was a character well sounds like one like to be in control and the other one was slipping from yes. that control yeah. <laughs> yeah. yes and i love the voice in the poem what other projects are you working on um i'm also working on just uh writing um a number of poems about my parents uh they both passed three years ago uh within a couple of weeks of each other I'm so sorry. I remember uh, it was very difficult. Yeah, yeah. And the love that they had for each other in their 60-some years of marriage was oh. just, I, I am so fortunate to have had both my parents married for that period of time. You know, I'm one of the fortunate ones to, uh, to have that kind of relationship to look up to uh, with it. So trying to document... Uh, a lot of their life, their life together, um, and just recording some of those memories has been an ongoing project. I really, I, de- I started into it when Dad started to to get sick and show he had uh, Lewy body dementia, and so when that started to show. I knew then was the time that I really needed to make sure that I was getting things. So I spent quite a... They both lived with me and um, until he was moved into a nursing home. And uh, we spent quite a few days just talking and getting a number of the stories and, and different things. And it was a wonderful time. That is also a privilege that not too many people yeah. either because of circumstances don't have or because they're afraid to ask or mm-hmm. uh, 
for whatever reason don't take the time or that you know the parents are not willing to share or answer mm. <laughs> because sometimes that is also happening yeah and that that was the thing you know like like i said about you know dad's father that was something that wasn't talked about uh, you know until i asked the question i don't know if it would have ever been talked about had i not asked that question seeing you know realizing that they didn't have much time left, you know, maybe a few years that, you know, it was, okay, you've got to ask what you yeah. need to know. We have time for one more poem. Yeah, well, uh, I'll wrap up then with this one since I talked about how much they loved one another and this is sort of the heart of that collection. Um, and this, this is a true story. <laughs> it's called He Says, She Says. I asked them about their wedding day. He remembers asking Harold to borrow his Hudson Hornet for something. She insists they had her daddy's Jeep. He asked how many months they've been married. She says almost 63 years. He responds, no, months. I intervene with math, 62 years times 12 months, plus December, January, February, March, April, and May. This time around the sun gives you 749. He says, that sounds about right. That is stunning. I love it. So you are a family poet. Definitely. You know, <laughs> there are nature poets, there are poets of place. And you are a part of family. Uh, I mean, everything that you said has some kind of connection. Yeah, that's what I, I find that most of my work relates back to family. Well, good luck with finishing and publishing those projects. They are all fabulous. I have one last question for you, and it is the question that I ask all my guests who teach creative writing. If the, what is the most important thing you teach your students? If you want them to remember one thing from your class, what is it? If I want them to remember one thing, I would say write, write from your soul. Write from, write from yourself. Don't, you know, don't worry about what so-and-so may think or what, if it's good enough or anything like that. You know, write first from your soul. Thank you. Thank you.